Hello, this is Leading with James Ashton, the podcast that brings together two leaders every time from different organisations. They compare notes about how they learn to lead, the challenges they face every day, and the advice they offer to the next generation of leaders. Earlier episodes feature dozens of CEOs from the worlds of business, charity, the arts and beyond, with their take on leading vital causes, famous brand names and multi-million pound enterprises. Please take a listen. This time around, world-leading childcare meets accountancy and consultancy. Matthew Shaw is Chief Executive of Great Ormond Street Hospital, the famous London institution that has been dedicated to children's healthcare since its creation in 1852. Last year it treated 260,000 patients across 50 areas of specialist care. Matthew's joined by Kevin Ellis. He's the UK chairman and senior partner of Price Waterhouse Coopers, the largest of the professional services firms that advises on tax, company audit, restructuring, technology and deals. PwC employs 22,000 people and last year revenues passed £4 billion. I began the conversation asking Kevin about his re-election for another four years as the boss of PwC. I think it's partly about carrying on. It's also about being honest about what you've learned in the first phase. So going through the re-election process, that was probably the question I was asked the most. So it is a chance for reflection. I think for me, the big reflection was that when I started out in the first year, right after the referendum, business was tough and I thought we were getting on with it well and I was explaining it well and communicating well. At the end of the year, I realised that no one was listening. People just get caught in their own worlds. And I realised that this is all about communication. Everyone's got to know their role in the organisation and how they fit into the strategy. Strategy is just one part of it. So I think my takeaway is whatever I think I'm communicating well, times it by about 10, kind of reach into the middle of the organisation, do different ways of communicating so you can kind of reach people. So it wasn't the outside world not listening, it was actually your people not listening. I think just not hearing. Right. So, And you think as a leader, you get caught up in your own world, there's a lot going on within a lot of change, and you kind of think, oh, I put that email out, I did that, I did that presentation, everyone heard me. And then at the end of the year, you kind of start talking to people about your strategy and you kind of see a slightly blank yep. expression. And so that's been my big learning. I think probably, you know, probably 30% of my time is communicating. People need to know how they've got a role to play and how they fit in so they feel part of it. Yeah, and we should just clarify before turning to Matthew. I mean, there's, there's something unique about firms like PwC. It's an election. You have to be chosen by your people to be the, the one to go out ahead, if you like. Yeah, no, it's an election, it's a secret ballot, and this time round, people had the chance to stand against me, and then it goes to a secret ballot for 1,100 partners. And literally, it's kind of, as I say, my children say, it's like the X Factor, I won't quite describe it as the same, but uh, it, is, uh, it is a secret ballot. So it's an interesting process to go through, and it's an interesting journey, personally. It's like the X Factor with sharper suits. <laughs> Matthew, yeah. not elected at Great Ormond Street. No, not elected. But you were, so you've done just over a year as the head of this wonderful London institution. You came in as medical director before that. Did you have an eye on the top job when you came in? No, it was very unplanned, actually. Um, I came in, there was a great CEO at the time, Peter Steer, and I really hit it off with him when the medical director job came up. I'd, I'd worked in the private sector, actually, for a little bit, which is unusual for an NHS doctor, not as a, a kind of a medic in the private sector, as a, as a manager for Booper, actually, Booper Insurance. And uh, it really attracted me to come and work at Great Ormond Street, great institution. I was a spinal surgeon, a kid's spinal surgeon, so it all kind of matched really nicely. And then after seven months, he, he had a grandchild in, in Australia and decided to leave. And, and I guess you're faced with the question of, well, do you, you know, stump up and go for it and do that? Or do you see who comes in and, uh, and how they want to run the organisation? I guess I chose to, to see, you know, to take the opportunity and see what I could do with the organisation. So you've stumped up? I've stumped up and uh, to <laughs> so, kind of... So what's the challenge now? Everyone 
knows the organization. There's a lot mm. of love for it. If you were being pessimistic, you could say there's lots that could go wrong, but then you've got to accentuate what's been going right for so many years. Yeah, and I think that there's lots that do go does go really, really right, but there's also lots that does go wrong. And I think that's the nature of, of healthcare and, and, and the world which we live in healthcare. And I think it's when you're an institution like Gosh, you get absolutely all the best of media, quite rightly, with all the innovation that goes on there. But quite rightly as well, there's a lot of scrutiny on it. And I think more so than any other place I've seen or, or recognised within the NHS, there is a lot of focus and, and, a lot, and, and, and that brings a lot of pressure on, on the staff to deliver and perform. So I think the, the biggest challenges we have is, a, is, is an NHS which, you know, there's ever-increasing pressures on, on how do we run services to the to best effect. How do we maintain our excellence in a world and an NHS which is, you know, is, is struggling to, to some extent? And, and how do we get the culture right? And I, I know that other leaders have, have talked about culture and, and actually it, it's so, so important. It's the bedrock of how you achieve change and how you're successful. Mm. Kevin, the change agenda for you, well, you're growing very well, but what is the big challenge? Is it, is it doing more and faster and, and making sure that your people are trained as, as broadly as possible? Um, it comes in many forms. I think probably there's the quality agenda around audit, which obviously is out there. And it's a bit, as Matthew said, you know, you're, you're trying to ensure you've got the right culture. You can put all the rules in place, but you've got to have the right culture. For me, I think it's uh, the fourth industrial revolution. You know, technology is going to take away 30% of the jobs probably in the world and create probably 30% of the jobs. Uh, and we're going to have to ensure that we're relevant with that huge change going on. So upskilling our people and being able to show potential school leavers, apprentices, graduates that are thinking about where they go, if you come and join us, we will give you the skills. The idea of, I think, someone having an education and a career and then retirement's gone. It's all about lifetime learning. Mm. And we've got to kind of meet that need. And that's, that's a huge change. Mm. And you've got to do that as well with culture. Because if all your people aren't sat outside your office, you can't see your teams because mm. you'll use alternative delivery models. You'll use people in India, people in Belfast to deliver. So you've got to get that culture to work, not just for the people you can see, but the people that are part of your team that you can't see. Yeah, I mean, everyone's still showing up at PwC. I think you had 100,000 applicants last year. I suppose that you need to make sure that you're getting, it's the right people you're bringing in that you can bring on. And this 30% of the jobs that will disappear, no one quite knows which 30% it is yet, do they? They don't. And I think with the 30%, you've got to focus on that they're jobs, they're not people. So if you can train the people, they can move to jobs. So it's that reskilling, that's that kind of lifetime learning that's so important. Yeah, over 100,000 people applied to join us last year. We recruited 1,300 school leavers, apprentices and graduates, and 2,500 kind of experienced hires. Uh, again, one of the really interesting things there is we're the number one social mobility employer in the UK. We recruited from over 100 different educational establishments. And that's not just because it's a societal good to do, it's an economic necessity. Our marketplace is so diverse that they won't buy from you unless you are diverse in terms of the people that are out there mm. effectively selling and we're a selling organisation. Mm. So that sounds like an achievement for the first four years from the first term. Yeah, it is. And again, it's meeting a market need. I mean, you meet the market need of the technology skills, you meet the market need of recruiting the right people with the right backgrounds to kind of face off to the market. Because yeah. at the end of the day, we've been going 175 years, but being relevant five years from now, there's no, there's no rights to that. You've got to earn it. You are nearly as old. I think you're, well, you're actually, you actually, you started within a few years of each other, I think. Yeah, I think so. Gosh, it's a gosh, is, gosh, is 1852. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Yeah. So yeah. I brought, this is why I brought you together. <laughs> Matthew, tell me about your people because 5,000 people on site and another 1,000 volunteers. So how do you get the best out of them? 
Yeah, I think it's really, I mean, a very, very diverse uh, workforce, but actually GOSH isn't as diverse as many other institutions. And that's one of the things that we really need to improve on. There's more black and African uh, and Asian minority uh, people within London who are nurses now, but at GOSH, there's only 25%. Uh, so actually there's a lot of work for us to do to be a lot more diverse. And we absolutely believe the more diverse we are, the better decision-making uh, we will have. But yeah, you've, you've got people in, in the hospital that have never been or done GCSEs. And you've got people that I've got PhDs and are world leaders. And how do you run the organization when you are so diverse? And I think what you said at the start about how you communicate with your people, it's even more difficult when you have such a spread and diversity of interest and background. And I think as CEOs, we probably do actually nothing. I think it's all our people that do everything. And actually, what surprised me about this year is, is how much time and effort and nudging and massaging and trying to create the right environment that my people can deliver. And I think that it shouldn't have surprised me. It's probably a naive thing to say, but actually, I think it's it's taken a lot to get that to uh, to happen. Because there is a, there's a mention in the annual report. The chairman mentioned your compassionate leadership as something that will help to to lift lift that yeah. up. So tell me a bit about that. Well, I think kindness is the word I use a lot. I think it's it's come very much into vogue in the in the past few months. But actually, uh, I, I think the kindness and the way you run an organisation in a compassionate, fair, and just way. I think is is really really important that staff can rely upon fair process and know that the organization is going to treat them in in, in the right way and i think that's really really uh, important but i also think it's, it's really important to be open about the strengths of your organization and, and the weaknesses and to share that and i think what i've tried to do is is to really call out the stuff we're great at and we're great at so much but also the stuff that we're not and you know gosh has a bullying and harassment problem you know it's really clear that that's the case I'm really being, it, st it still does yeah it, it still does and, and i think that's partly because of the high pressure working environment that we have and it's how we as managers can support staff to work in those environments and actually manage those stress levels and and have the behaviors that are there in the right way but i think it's it's about just really openly talking about this stuff it's yeah. a really tough environment 120 children die at gosh every year many of our staff see that day in day out and that that propagates in terms of certain behaviors which are just natural to human nature uh, and i think it's it's not that we have bad people it's not that people come to work to to do those kind of behaviors but it is a very very tough environment and i think talking about that openly just having the conversation as i'm doing here i think is, is really important to achieve that balance of all the excellence and all the stuff that we could do a bit better on kevin we should talk about trust do we trust firms like pwc I think trust in business, I think there's the Edelman survey that comes out every January and trust in business, trust in politicians, trust in the media are an all time low. Um, and therefore, and as just as Matthew says, you know, there are things that where we have human failings. Our stress is nothing like the stressful situation you and your people are in, but the stress of getting it right, working under pressure does result in human failings. Unfortunately, you know, we do four and a half thousand audits a year. Mm. If a handful go wrong, that's all you read about. The others don't ever mm. see. But at the same time, my job is to remind our people, and exactly the same as Matthew, you've got to care for each other, you've got to support each other, you've got to collaborate. Because if I lose the talent, then our, our, our risk on quality goes up, not down. So I have to retain people, and therefore, by talking about it as a leader, by talking about how we build trust. What's really interesting, I think, in Edelman is the most trusted cohort in the society today, anywhere in the world, is employees and their employers. It's about 77% of trust. Mm. So we are at an advantage because as leaders, we can build off of that trust and help to kind of give people something in terms of something to aspire to, but also talk openly and hold our hands up. When we have human failings, it's not about covering things up, it's being honest. 
We couldn't get the judgment right on that. With hindsight, we've learned. Mm. But you're never going to get everything right. Not in not in a hospital, not in a business. That is the challenge. And I think that's really important that you you show vulnerability as a leader. And when you don't get things right, you you show that and are visible about it. Uh, and I think that also creates a, a culture where people will uh, try and innovate, but accept that that failure is okay. And yeah. I think it, that's an inevitability. And and creating that culture, I think, is is really really important. I think far too much we have always gone to the things that haven't gone right and who's going to get shot for it rather than actually uh, actually that was a really good idea good try it didn't work this time let's tweak and change mm. it and it will work mm. next time because mm. if you don't do that you will never move forward and no. you'll you'll play too safe yeah and in a competitive world with the kind of technology disruption going on yeah. you become irrelevant very quickly mm. yeah. so like you say i mean diversity increased innovation and you know and sameness sameness just leads to sameness so it's really important that we have a diverse workforce but they're encouraged to innovate and try new things and one way of getting over this trust is what's out there at the moment should firms like yours be structurally separated this is a, a idea from the competition and markets authority supported by some politicians should there be greater disclosure about margins and fees and and so on should big firms share audit with small firms and so on what's your response to all of that that's out there there's been a lot of reading to do recently there's been a lot of reading there's a lot of reports um look um, we're up for change but i don't see that splitting up the firms we're we're a global business and we're one of the important training grounds in the uk as well as one of the important businesses that under kind of scores capital markets you need a diverse set of skills to do that job uh, you know our big audits probably 30 percent of the time spent on them are from auditors the others are the specialisms the world is getting more complicated you need that specialist in-house to deliver second thing is you need resilience you know audit firms have got to have the balance sheet to deal with the shocks because things will go wrong there will be litigation there will be challenges from politicians you need that strength but also at the same time if we had a different audit structure here in the uk as you go into brexit compared to the rest of the world that will put us at a disadvantage in the professions and I think the professions are really important for this country, both mm. in terms of training, but also in terms of job creation. So, so, that, so I think there's a relevance and a need to be consistent with the rest of the world. If we change our rules and no one else in the world changes their rules, that will be a damage to us as the UK. Right. Okay. And but so the answer is that you're up for change, but what the change is, we still we're still. No, I think transparency. Your point on transparency, I absolutely agree with. So it's we about are, how are, much do the audit partner get paid? Yeah, What's the margin? Being being, uh, being transparent. We are open and transparent, and I think being consistent about the transparency about what we're doing, the fact that we don't do non-audit services for audit clients yep. Uh, yep. in the FTSE 350, things like that. I think being clear about what we do and what we don't do mm. to avoid the misinformation. But I think a lot of people don't really understand what an audit is. I think we haven't done a good enough job of explaining what an audit is and where the auditor's responsibility starts and ends and where management's responsibility starts and ends. And mm. they are different. Mm. Matthew, when reading about Gosh and, and the mission and so on, which has been freshened up recently, mm. what struck me as interesting is... Clearly, everyone knows you're, you're dealing with a, a lot of kids every year. I think 260,000 patients come mm. through the door, half of them from outside of, of London, mm. 50 different areas. Uh, you know, the greatest breadth, I think, of, of treatments of any hospital yeah. in the UK. Yeah. But there's something in there as well about using your voice. What are you going to use your voice for? Are you going to speak out on certain issues? Yeah, I think I think um, what we'd like to be is much more of an advocate for child in, in the more holistic sense. I think we've we've stuck to a very specialist area of, of medicine. We're very good at that. We innovative treatments for rare diseases we, you know we've had some amazing discoveries in the past um, few years but actually we feel that we need to advocate more for children you know we, we're living in a society where for the first time infant mortality rates in some areas of the UK are rising and, and that in a civilized western society should not be occurring mm. 
Uh, and there's there's multi multiple factors for that in terms of socioeconomic deprivation or things like that. But actually, we need to stand up for children. That's not acceptable. It should be uh, going down rather than going up. Vaccination rates are going down. People are getting mumps. People are getting measles. Um, and we want to be an advocate for children in a, in a wider sense. And we've not used that voice before, uh, but we think it's really important to do so. So what is the answer there? It's, it's, it sounds like it's an inf- almost an information programme. If It's the parents who aren't getting the, the children inoculated. Well, part of it is around education. Part of it's around research. Part of it's around being a bit more outspoken around the things that we think should happen for children in their best interests. And children don't always necessarily get the same voice as other parts of the population. So we want to restore a bit of that balance. Kevin, tell me about your management or leadership style. I think what I've learned, again, in doing the first term was that um, you've got to be self-aware of the things you're not quite as good at. There'll be things that you're good at, that's why you do the job, but there'll be things where you need to have people around you to support you. So I think it's about delegating to others in the areas where they're naturally stronger than you and then being willing to make the decisions as a board. I think when I look around, it all comes back down to that communications. If you're going to get the right culture, you've got to be seen to be selecting people that represent your values and your culture on your leadership team. There's no point in saying this is our culture and values and then people say, well, that person doesn't reflect those. Mm. Because at the end of the day, the world is more transparent. So my leadership style is, I, I like to think it's an inclusive one, but one where we're living the values and culture that we espouse by both the selection, development and delegation to the people around me. Do you have to be mindful of, of, of who's on your shoulder, if you like? I mean, there are 1,100 partners, I think. They all own a bit of it. You're representing them. So you have to, mm. you know, somehow, uh, you know, synthesize all that, don't you? Yeah, although I say because it's an election, it is really empowering. So the fact I've just been re-elected right. um, by the majority of partners, at least I know that they agree with the strategy I'm following and they're supportive of me. Because if they're not, I wouldn't be here now. Was there any competition? Uh, no, there wasn't. They had a chance to stand and no one decided to stand against me again, which I found, say, so it does give you a kind of a, a right to lead. And I think you've got to respect that in terms yeah. of how you go about it. At the same time, you have the responsibility to ensuring that you're going to bring through another generation mm. because this is all about legacy. Mm. And one of the interesting things that happened to me is when I was much younger, I was mentored by an Indian partner called Dipanka Ghosh. And I remember saying to him, you know, you've got all these partners. I wasn't a partner. How do you tell the difference between them? Who, how do you tell who's any good or who's not very good? Because you can kind of tell the staff because they're doing similar jobs. The partners are all doing different jobs. And he said, oh, that's quite easy. Look at the number of people they've brought through. This business is all about passing the baton on. It's mm-hmm. all about legacy. So he said, if you can spot the partner that's brought more directors and more partners through beneath them, they're the high quality ones. And that's really stayed with me. So my job is to make sure I bring through the talent so the firm have the choice four years time when I move on, not just of selecting the next me being the senior partner, but the people around them to run their board. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so I say, you know, it'd be easy just to stay with, with the, you've got to have the right board for dealing with the strategy and the challenges you've got today. But you've also got to have the right board that are gaining the experience to yeah. deal with the strategy and challenges of yeah. tomorrow. Matthew, what changed as you stepped up? Yeah, I mean, it's quite an interesting journey for me because um, I became a consultant in 2009. Uh, and actually within two years, I'd become medical director and then well, how many years would that? It would be about eight to 10 years I became chief exec. So it was a, an unusual path because most people in medical director roles don't become uh, that role until they're in their 50s or mid-50s in, in many cases. So it was an unusual path, but I was always really interested in, I was always a bit, bit nosy about everything that was going on in the organisation. I never was just boxed to how to sort out quality and safety in the organisation. I was always really interested in what was going on in HR, what was going on in finance, how did the, uh, the actual business really tick? And that was the thing. So 
it wasn't such a jump when I made the jump from medical director to chief exec because I was already had the knowledge, the influence had made the, some of the decisions and, and therefore it, it didn't feel so alien as it could have yep. done if I hadn't have been so interested. Did you have mentors like Kevin or were you pu- were you propelling yourself forward? Yeah, well, I mean, I didn't have a plan at the start, which is probably a stupid thing to, to not have. But uh, I did have a fantastic chief executive who had a, a finance background who at a very early stage of my career made me medical director. And I think that was a really brave move. Medicine's really hierarchical. Uh, I'm sure maybe your business is too. But I mean, it's extremely hierarchical in terms of, you know, how long you've been in the industry, when you trained, whether you're a doctor, whether you're a nurse. And, and it's something I really balk against. And, and I hate hierarchies. I think they really get in the way of doing some of the right things. Well, you shattered a few on, on in, well, into this well, role, exactly, I guess. And I'm quite pleased about that. Yeah. Um, uh, he took the brave step to promote me into that role. In, in You know, I'm an orthopedic surgeon by background, and, and it's super hierarchical. Hmm. So to have a, you know, 36-year-old uh, guy try and manage uh, a, a group of surgeons who are in their 50s, early 60s, who know the way of the world and how they want to, to, to do medicine it was a real, um, I think, a brave move. And how's me. it gone? Have you had any rows with those uh, those 50-year-olds this it, year? It, it, I think I started off wanting to be nice and please everybody, and you rapidly realise that that's simply not possible. So this is Mr. Uh, Nasty now, 2.0. <laughs> well, well, it's really, I mean, I think the, the you know, have a scrap when you need to have a scrap, and, and 99% of times you avoid that by good communication, trying to get people on your side and understanding yep. the, the bigger picture uh, and understanding the purpose of the organisation and what you're trying to achieve and recognising you're coming from a good place. Yeah. But yeah, inevitably, I think sometimes you you have to have a, a bit of a scrap. Yeah. And, uh, you mentioned about not having a career plan. I think that's an interesting one. Because a number of times I come across people who I mentor through the Mentoring Foundation and the like, who talk about career plans. Yeah. I never had a career plan. I, no. I think the trouble with a career plan, you're always in disappointment because nothing ever goes to plan, does yeah. it? So I think you end up kind of angry with the world sometimes with some career plans. I think I think your your story is the one that resonates very well with me, just taking advantage of the opportunities they come across. Uh, and do medicine. the best job yeah. and the opportunities come. And I often say to people working for me, if you do the best job and opportunities come, take advantage of them. Mm. If you start writing out a plan by five years, I'll be here, 10 years I'll be there. You're bound to be disappointed. And medicine's like an escalator. So actually, there's two halves to my life. It's a bit schizophrenic in relation to uh, the fact that in, in medicine, you get you know you do your time served, you pass your exams, and you progress up the ladder. In, in management terms, it's very, very different. And, and you get fired uh, in mm. these jobs. You know, I've mm. left a job which, you know, I had a lifetime job and, and you know, hopefully as a good consultant, I would have never have got fired, to a job where the average expectancy of, of tenure is three years. Hmm. Uh, and that's as a CEO, a, as a CEO, yeah, and that's yeah. a huge mind shift to think how no. I've got a you know family, young three young children. How do I put myself in that position and justify that risk versus mm. the opportunity mm. of what an amazing job and an amazing thing I could do with with the uh, uh, and Kevin too. Um, Matthew mentioned the, the magic number thirty six. You'll hate me for saying this, but you, you have had thirty six years at PwC. You've had a long, long run up at getting that top job. So what do you bring from seeing it all? absolutely at the ground level as opposed to an incoming CEO? I think you've got to understand the culture uh, and you can add to the culture as well. But as I say, it's um, it's not a vanilla organisation. We do lots of different things. So I spent 20 years of my life in insolvency. I mean, I, like a lot of people, joined the firm to get qualified and then go and get a proper job. Uh, and the people and the culture kind of kept me there. So I know the value that if you're going to hold on to the talent, you've got to do that. But then doing insolvency, you're seeing businesses going out of business, but you're also seeing businesses restructure. You're seeing different leadership styles that work and different leadership styles that don't work. And you can that, I think, adds to yeah. my, the tapestry of knowledge that I bring into the organisation. Yeah. It's interesting, we talk about brief about hierarchy, and you know, it is hierarchical because there is a hierarchy in all businesses. Someone has to be at the top. Someone has to be at the top. But one thing I think is breaking hierarchy, and I can really feel it now, is technology. Mm. So when you're 
doing a report or something like that, in the past, you took the edits for the report from people from, say, emails or documents, and you normally chose the edits by, effectively, by seniority or by names you knew. Now you're doing documents live on Google, and as a result, you just edit it. Whoever's on the team edits it, and all you do is see their initials, and you just take the content rather than the person. So you can see how technology is in the flattened organizations like mine. Yeah. and give people opportunity earlier and give people kind of recognition earlier. What about that? You mentioned the insolvencies. What about mm. those situations? I think you worked on some famous ones. Mm. WorldCom, the big telecoms mm -hmm. company mm. that that, mm. uh, that collapsed. When you go into that situation, I mean, do you have to you know, own it if you like? Obviously, there's a rule book. There's laws you follow. Um, at the end of the day, though, again, you've got to build a culture in your team and you've got to build a trust sometimes with the management. Quite a lot of the time, you might decide that's not the right management, but there might be another layer below that management that you want to bring through mm. to take over because a lot of it's about restructuring. So it's about being able, I think, to both analyze a situation, but also it's not about numbers, it's about people. And if you can kind of decide which people you trust, which people are able to create the right values and care to hold on to the value of the organization. At the end of the day, a lot of these organizations, the value is in the people and the workforce. They're the ones, as Matthew mm. said rightly earlier, mm. they're the ones that do the job, mm. that make the business work. So whoever can lead them the most effectively, you kind of want to put them in control. And so it's, that's a lot of the job I've done in most of the restructurings I've been involved in. has been analyzing the team that are there and deciding, right, how am I going to do this? And how am I then going to convince the creditors to support that person to add more value to the creditors in terms of saving the business? But it's quite a skill because you've got to be quick in some of those situations. Mm. I mean, the, not all assets are piled up in a warehouse. No, no things it, just it, melt away. You do have to, I think you do learn quite quickly that not making a decision is definitely wrong. So you've got to always make a decision yep. and you know, hopefully you're going to get it right most of the time, but probably not all of the time. Mm. But if you, if you wait for too much information, the chance are you get, you haven't, you know, the business is gone. People yeah. are left. So, it's, and, it, and it's also about, again, as I said earlier, the learning around communications. What you can't do is you can't let people make their own decision about what's going on. Yep. You've got to tell them, this is what's going on. This is what we can do. This is your role in doing it. Yep. That yep. is absolutely critical. Matthew, you mentioned your commercial background with Boop. I'm really interested in how you bring a, a commercial mindset to, to Gosh because... Mm. There is financial strain. Correct me if I'm wrong. When roughly there's about half a billion of, of revenue, and um, we don't associate revenue with with hospital, yeah. but there's revenue. Yeah. About 400 million is coming in from patient care, much of that yeah. from NHS, and then 100 from other. Yeah. But it does look like you need to rebalance. You need to go looking for other other sources of revenue. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, you're absolutely right. So, so um, Gosh, as, as several other uh, NHS hospitals, has a significant private patient uh, business and also a really successful research arm, actually, and many commercial trials and working with industry partners to deliver that. And I think that diversity adds a lot to the, the hospital and the organisation. Um, we have a lot of international um, patients that come over to Gosh, uh, and that really, I think, does breed a lot of diversity, a lot of research opportunity, uh, and, and actually we do some great things. I think um, in the world that we live, we are ever striving to be as excellent as we can be. And that, that requires us to try and get other sources of income to bolster NHS income in order that we can get that edge. We're not necessarily competing with some um, UK hospitals, and I wouldn't say we do compete. I think um, who we are competing with on the global stage are the Bostons, the uh, Torontos, the Philadelphias, and, and they have a very different healthcare system with a very different uh, revenue base of how they run mm. uh, their organisation. So, so we have to be smart about how we do it and we have to give 
the NHS patients a fantastic service, but we also have to diversify so we can compete and develop these new innovative treatments and all the things that we really want to do. So that's so, that's about. So I know there's new there's the Zayed there's uh, yeah. rare, there's various things opening a new centre for for um, rare diseases yeah. and there's some sight and sound that's right work. But you're saying you need to work with more overseas hospitals, bring in more private patients who who will you know pay the bills and, and offset that against what you're getting from NHS. Yeah, I mean, I think in an ideal world, um, every one of our beds would be used for NHS patients. I think the reality of the situation is there is enough capacity across London in particular uh, to manage uh, many of the patients that we see. And therefore, it's important that we use all of our beds in the wisest way we can in order to get revenues to bolster the things that we want to do. I think it's a real tension. I think it's a real tension for me as chief exec to, to absolutely do the right thing by the NHS. I'm passionate about it. That's why I joined it as a doctor in it, as a manager in it. I, I have the same you know views on it. Um, I think it's... Um, but there is this tension about making the place truly excellent and how do we do that and how do we do that in an innovative commercial way which doesn't in any way uh, affect or detriment the NHS patients that we treat. And there's sort of a funny irony in a way. You're, you are being held up to NHS performance targets. Yeah. Um, if only they met your financial targets, that would be nice. Yeah, well, I think the NHS performance standards absolutely, you know, all hospitals, we have to, to okay. meet those standards. But what we're really trying to do is to take everything to the next level and compete yeah. with those Bostons and Philadelphias okay. to, to, to really benefit children because... Unless we have an amazing research arm, unless we invest in the infrastructure to be able to do that, we can't possibly compete with uh, compete with them, and that's that's to the detriment of the NHS as a whole mm. and UK PLC actually, mm. uh, because London is a a very popular place for people to come and travel and to get um, uh, healthcare. Mm. Yeah, Kevin, just to go back a little into your history, I was interested that you have had a couple of placements outside of. PwC. One of one of your placements was NHS. Yeah. You have ob observations there of what you saw in leadership. And so yeah, on. it wasn't a placement. It was uh, I worked in uh, the turnaround. When we had the turnaround uh, issue going on in the NHS, so I did a number of. I worked with Southampton Hospital and a number of other hospitals in terms of helping the management team. Okay, so yeah. it's a real sort of yeah. bring a commercial mindset. It just was, as it we're was, talking. It, about. Yeah, it was, and it was about fifteen years ago. Yeah. We still do work today like that because basically, the, what I was asked to do was to take the knowledge from the private sector into the NHS as a way of um, making, making it more efficient. And it was a lot of it was about length of stay. Uh, I mean, a lot of it was about quality, but a lot of it was about length of stay. So I had the opportunity to work with some fantastic medical directors, nursing directors, and CEOs. For me, it was quite interesting how similar the NHS was to a lot of the private sector turnarounds. Same issues, same challenges, yeah. all about the people and all about the leadership mm. style of the people to get effectively the most value from the asset. And that, I mean, that sounds quite Regardless callous, of where the money is coming from. We, yeah, yeah, at the end of the day, you have a budget. And if you can make that work more effectively, then you can serve more people and help more people. And that was mm. the challenge. And, uh, you know, the people inside the National Health Service were fantastic and they had a real calling. But at the same time, they really did want to learn. And uh, they were just interested. But I think the biggest interest are always the conversation I had, whether I was talking to people in government, in the kind of minister, ministry at the time, or in the NHS, they were surprised how similar it was mm. to the private sector. Everyone kept saying, it must be completely different <laughs> to anything you've ever seen in the private sector. And I said, no, it's exactly the same. You're always trying to get the most f value for the people you're trying to serve. So everything Matthew just said, you recognise that totally, completely. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think people think there's a real tension between this word efficiency and, and quality of care and what we can give to patients. Mm. But but actually, if we can get our scanners working, you know, longer in a day, we can bring waiting times down, and we can use those assets more efficiently. The better it will be for patients, actually. Yeah. Well, when I was involved with it, I totally agree with that Matthew because when I was involved in it, I remember being asked actually at the select committee, you know, 
surely if it's efficiency, the, the quality goes down for the patients. Mm -hmm. And I said, every hospital that I've seen go through turnaround has improved all of its NHS scores, MRSA scores, because you get pride back into the organization. Yeah. If you're seen as a failing hospital, pride goes, quality goes, mm -hmm. and people lose, effectively, they lose respect. retention, all yeah, those things. All of that. Too. So it's it, just like my business, you know, if I, at the end of the day, it's all about, for me, audit quality. I mean, yeah. and therefore, if you can give the pride, you can invest in the people, and you, you can say to them, look, you're doing a fantastic job. My auditors are doing a fantastic job. Because if they don't say that and they leave, then the quality will go down. And it's exactly the same I, I saw in hospitals, that when you get the pride back, and they're suddenly sure. they're performing, they're hitting their budgets, suddenly all the other stats come up. They're not, they're not either or, they're and. And are, are, head, are heads down in audit at the moment? Do you worry um, about that? Well, no, interesting. Look, um, it goes back to comms. Um, there's a lot of media scrutiny. There's a lot of tension around a few cases that haven't gone well where, you know, judgment's been wrong. Well, we have made, we held our hands up, we have made yeah, errors. Yeah. But I've spent a lot of time explaining that, you know, we're investing more, we're investing more in quality, more in training. Uh, we do a U-Matter survey, uh, kind of engagement survey. And the one at Christmas, we had a 77% engagement score and 85% pride in the audit section of the business, 86% mm. overall. Mm. So it, I think people are proud of what mm. they're doing. They're proud of the organization, mm. but you can't, you can't kind of ever stop. You've sure. got to keep reminding people of the role they're playing. Matthew, back to making the bold changes. You, you've had experience of this before. I think you had that scary title of transformation director ah, yes. when you were at the um, Royal National Orthopaedic Hospitals. Yep. Uh, you were the man to avoid in the corridor. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I think there's a real fear of change across you know many people. I, I mean, I deliberately took that role on because I think it, it should be clinically led in a hospital. Mm. Uh, and I, I mean that in the widest sense of clinically led, whether you're a doctor, a nurse, a physio or whoever you are. Uh, I think it has most effect. I think that uh, strong, a strong clinical voice mm. and a real clear understanding and, and a, a knowing what you want to do and having clinicians behind you, I think is the best way of achieving change. Um, I think it's a super risky job in the NHS because there's a load of people that don't want change. Um, and sometimes they're right. <laughs> and, and, and many times there's if you divide the workforce I always say there's the kind of happy middle that you'll be yep. able to swing there's the early adopters and then there's the laggards which you'll never follow and, and I think my, my job in that role was to bring the top two thirds of the organisation with me and understand what we were trying to do did it work? Um, so I think some things worked and some things worked less so I think it would be yep. wrong to say it was all rosy how do you stay in touch now with the um, with the grassroots? Yeah, so I think that's all about presence on the wards, going around the hospital. I'm really proud of the fact that in my first year, our staff survey has shown a 10% uptick in um, trust for senior managers and communi uh, communication from senior managers. Are you practicing as, as well? Are you are you are uh, a year and a half? I stopped. Right. So uh, you, okay. yeah, I think it's very difficult as a surgeon to balance the CEO role and being a good surgeon. So you've segged over now. This is well, change. I am a manager, the dark side, whatever you want to yeah. uh, call us. Uh, but, Do you miss yeah. it? Um, I do miss it. It was part of the sanest part of my week in many ways. And there was one patient, one focus, and, and that was uh, mindful in, in yeah. many ways. But actually what I love about my day now is the diversity. Every hour is a different problem. And and actually hopefully you're in a position where you can sort some of this stuff out, which frustrates people. And you talked about how you've got to help the staff deal with you know the reality of loss, which is always going to happen at, you know not everyone can be saved, sadly. What about how the leadership and how you deal with that? Because you want to do your best for every patient. Mm. I think um, it, it's really hard. And as a clinician, you know, I felt that loss when things happened and went wrong and other things. And, and it's very, very difficult. I think 
in my view of the world, I think you, you start off, whether you're a manager or as a consultant, and you have a base level of stress. You have various points in your career which that significantly rises, whether it's a negative event, a death, or, or something that happens, and that baseline stress never comes back to normal. Mm. And and I see ever increasing numbers of of people in their forties and fifties who are suffering with burnout and and are, and are really really struggling. And that's because the organisation hasn't recognised that, hasn't spotted it, and tried to help people in that. So mm. so I think for me. It's about me supporting staff. Even when things are going wrong, I don't perceive in any way that I have a blame culture here. Everybody comes to work to mm. try their best. And just sometimes things don't happen in the way that you want them to. And that's the mm. way I, I take these things and try and support mm. people. Yeah. Kevin, do you miss being a, a practitioner as you were? I mean, you, wouldn't it be great just to get your sleeves rolled up and pile into a, a good old restructuring? Yeah, I think, as I say, everyone uh, kind of misses uh, the core yeah, uh, job. I think for me, one of the great things about doing that was the uh, you kind of had an outcome. You mm. did a job, you had an outcome. Uh, now it's it never stops. Something goes. <laughs> something goes well, and there's another eight things popping up. It's a bit like whack a mole. <laughs> yeah. um, but um, having said that, the energy you get from the people around you, and the energy you get from having to deal with all this, it is a it is a fantastic job. I mean, there are moments you think, actually, I would mm. quite like to just do that. But and, and a bit like Matthew, I, when I first went on the board, I carried on doing a client work. But the the challenge to whether you're doing the right job for the client and know enough to be able to do the mm. best job for the client was too much of a challenge. So I, I, in the end, I had to give up the client work. And I, I, do, I do miss it. But this because some people in, in in the sort of senior partner role do like to keep their their hand in, and others and others mm. don't. Um, Charlie Jacobs at um, Linklaters, for example, likes, likes to split his time and yeah. keep the clients. But it's it's difficult. Well, yeah, we've got. 25,000 people, 4.2 billion pound business. It, it does make it a bit of a challenge. When we spoke before, we, we talked about your dad. I'm very interested in that inspiration from very early on. I mean, he was chairman of Fife's, the, the mm. banana company. And I'm just interested in what, what you saw of his ascent, because I think he spent a long time there. And well, maybe how leadership has changed. Yeah, I think, as I say, I think you are uh, impacted by your growing up years and what people do around you. And I could always see how much he enjoyed work. I mean, he carried on working until he was well into his 70s. And because he enjoyed it, he took energy from it and so mm. on. So I think for me, there was kind of quite a big thing. I wanted to do a job that I was going to enjoy. It had to be something. If you're going to work this hard for this many years, you've really got to enjoy it. So I think that was a big factor. And also, he, he left school at 13 without any education at all and did everything at evening classes. And he spent his life acquiring knowledge. You know, he did some comment to McKinsey. He went off and did different courses all his life. He Which was is quiet. a very modern approach yeah. in a way. And so I think he was kind of ahead of his time in this kind of, and it was a, it was kind of a bit of a chip on his shoulder that he hadn't had the education and then he wanted to get it. So we, you know, my brother and sister and I were lucky and we had the education he never had. He was very keen on education because he kind of felt that was a big thing. So those kind of points had a big impact on me, I think, in growing up. And as I say, I think that you've got to have a job where you can get energy from people around him, but you have to enjoy it. So you're still learning now? Absolutely. Gosh, with the technology coming at us, I even had to do courses on artificial intelligence recently. That's a real learning for someone like me who's not doing that day to day. Mm. Mm. Matthew, is there someone early on, whether family member or, or mentor, or someone that you would, uh, you know, aspire to follow the route mm. that you did? Yeah, I mean, I, I was a, a single parent family in a council house till the age of, you know, in the early teens. Um, and, you know, I always, my mum always told me you can do anything you want if you work hard enough to get it. And I fundamentally believe that. Yeah. Um, myself and my mum were the first ones to go to university in our family. They're all factory workers and made locks uh, in the black, black country. And, uh, and I'm immensely proud 
of that that background, and I think it's very grounding uh, to to understand all different elements of society and and how people live. I think uh, that's probably she is probably my main focus on why I've got a main a real drive and determination, and um, yeah, I think she's amazing. Yeah. Well, it's just difficult. You've achieved so much already, and you know you've probably you know you can't retire just yet. So it's a question about yeah. what, what next. <laughs> well, I'm very aware that what goes up comes down quickly yes. as well. So, and that's 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 also really tricky to yeah. to think about the the what next. There um, was one particular issue I need to ask you about with Great Ormond Street, which is back to the the people, because so much of it does come back to the people. How well placed are you now that we have new immigration rules? Yeah, I mean, I think there's a, a the, the main impact I see around health and social care is is particularly around the social care element, where such a high percentage of, of staff are from um, uh, Europe uh, and what I would hope to see is some pragmatic immigration rules that which is allow people that do such an important part in our society and, and care for our, our elderly uh, to to come over and be able to fulfill uh, uh, that role and we'll see what manifests in the next uh, in the next months I think from a, a hospital perspective I think the, the main vulnerabilities that we were worried about such as uh, medicines and, and, and isotopes which have been well recorded I think now we're, we're at this this phase of the journey of Brexit, I think that has um, relented uh, significantly. I think there are issues around research and um, our ability to get European grants and how do we do that going forward. Mm. Uh, and I think we're very keen for any deal that comes forward to allow us access to, to European funds or at least partner with European hospitals in order to do research studies and trials. Because research is such an international it's, it, it's such an industry, international if you like. And it's particularly an for rare diseases where yeah. each hospital may have small cohorts of patients. Yeah. I think from a, uh, from a nursing pers- uh, perspective and, and all other areas of the hospital, uh, we're not the most vulnerable hospital in that but we still have a significant number of people from Europe and, mm. and we want to make them feel welcome and important and, mm. and you know we want them to stay in the UK and support them to do that as well yeah. as attract new people yeah. so uh, so we'll see what comes forward over the next uh, uh, 12 months but yeah very very important to us particularly in social care mm. Kevin what keeps you awake at night perhaps other than audit quality Not, nothing really keeps me awake I suppose at the end of the day it's all about reputation you can build a reputation as a business as an organisation and as an individual over many, many years, and you can lose it in a nanosecond. So it is always, for me, the things that you can't see out there that are coming at you, and waking up one morning and finding there's a press story, whether it's the Oscars, which became a bigger news story. I'd forgotten that one. There you go. But what I mean is there's always going to be something out there where there will be a human error, and it becomes, with social media and everything else, it becomes a huge story. So that's probably the, the biggest concern. But we should so know that it, we should note that it wasn't PwC UK looking after the Oscars, though. Thank you for that. It wasn't strictly strictly <laughs> your fault. <laughs> I see. It is. It's sort of the known unknowns. It's, it's known you unknowns. don't know what. Uh, to, absolutely. Yeah. And so there's, there's there's so much good you do, but it only takes one story which is negative, and that at the moment I would say we all have an interest, don't we, in the negative stories, whatever they may be. Mm-hmm. You know, plane landed safely isn't necessarily a headline, is it? Not so much. No, not that you would necessarily read. Well, it's like saying, I mean, how many how many audits? Four and a half thousand? Yeah. What's well, like saying PwC does 4,400 audits pretty well last year? I mean, it's not, that's not what's going to sell newspapers. No, and that, that, is, that, is the, that is the challenge. Sure. And, um, yeah. and I think it's a challenge for all businesses. I think it's a challenge that Matthew refers yeah. to in, in mm-hmm. uh, Gosh as well. Yeah. I think that's the same in, in healthcare. You know, you, you quoted the figure of 250,000 children. But, it, but if one child happens to have a bad experience, rightly so, we will be under the spotlight. And I think that's, that's absolutely fair because we need to get it right mm-hmm. and aspire to do it 100% of times right. The inevitability is sometimes it doesn't happen that way. Sure. Um, How are you help, helping people that are coming up behind you, Matthew? Yeah, I, I think it's really, really important. I mean, I spoke at um, a leadership course for clinicians a few weeks ago. 
and, and really just tried to invigorate them about how exciting and what the opportunity was in management. It, it's not been an attractive, sexy area for people in medicine to go. Uh, it's been seen as dangerous, risky, uh, short term, uh, and, and actually, why would you put yourself in that position? But I don't believe that's the case. And I believe you can make a significant change and a difference. And I would hope that many colleagues and, and, and doctors, nurses and physios, et cetera, that are out there would also aspire to do that. And I think we can achieve that. So mm -hmm. I think there is a great generation coming forward. There's much more interest in management. There's much more structure in training of managers mm -hmm. in the NHS than there ever was. And I think that will encourage some fantastic talent. And, and, and my job really is to promote that. Um, mm. So they come behind me. And is your role, Kevin, as you've kind of alluded to, it, it's not just about you mentoring the next generation. It's about making sure that, as, as your mentor said, everyone needs to bring them up. Yeah, that's right. And I think, as I say, you want people to feel that they're going to get the opportunity. Uh, that's why you retain the talent. And if you can inspire people to believe that that opportunity is there for them at every grade of the organisation, it'll be a better organisation for it. Mm -hmm. And just finally for you both, um, switching off, how do you get away from the job? So I play uh, dad's football, which is a dangerous thing on uh, Sunday. That's a special um, strain of football, isn't it? It's a special strain of football with people <laughs> who think or used to be able to play football that now quite do it, can't do it so much. Uh, I'm also a mega keen cyclist, so I, I'm Islington Cycling right. Club. I go around Regent's Park, I did London to Paris. So you have to get away from it. You've got to try and get a balance. And I think it's also about modelling that behaviour to your team, that you're not the first in the office and you're not the last in the office because... Actually, that's no good for anybody. Well, you're not the first in today anyway. No. no. Great. Kevin? Um, again, it's sport. Um, as I say, I, I spend a lot of time either running or personal trainer and stuff like that to try and stay as fit as possible. I've got four children, so I find myself being the kind of dad's cab at the weekend, driving them around. But I do enjoy staying on the touchline, watching them play slightly more dangerous sports than I would ever have done. Kevin Ellis and Matthew Shaw, thanks so much for the conversation. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Leading with James Ashton. Please rate and review us if you like what you heard. You can check out more details of the podcast at leadingpod.com. And you can also find more leaders sharing their stories wherever you get your podcasts. They include Amanda Wakeley on how she makes her fashion brand work. Over the last few years, we've divided the collection into being the fashion collection and then also offering your real key signature wardrobe staples. So your perfect pant, whether you're a flare girl or a wide leg girl or a peg pant girl, great white shirts, beautiful cashmere staples that you can always get. They never go on sale. You're, you're saying, I'm really proud of these pieces. They're perfect wardrobe staples or perfect in my mind. They're, and that I'm respecting my customer by saying, I don't put these on sale. These are beautiful pieces that form the foundation of your wardrobe. <laughs>